I wouldn't call this a smart policy because it ain't working. It is the week of May 18, and welcome to episode 25 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, returning guest Andrew Boreen, NSI senior fellow and former associate deputy general counsel at the U.S. Department of Defense. And I'm Lester Munson, senior fellow at NSI and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we'll be discussing Venezuela and Brazil. First, let's turn to Venezuela. Earlier this month, two Americans and several Venezuelans were detained in Venezuela during a comically botched coup attempt against Nicolas Maduro. It appears that there is at least some relationship between the coup plotters and Juan Guaido, who is the legitimate ruler of Venezuela, according to the United States and dozens of other countries. So, what has been the impact of this attempted coup on Maduro and Guaido's competing claims on power? Jamil, weigh in here, please. I mean, look, Les, it looks to me like it's actually worse for the Guaido government. Uh, they are the legitimate government of Venezuela, to be clear, because the coup looks amateurish. And any connections between the Guaido regime and the coup, or any connections between the United States or Colombia, just makes everyone look foolish. Uh, the Venezuelans clearly knew about it. The Venezuelan government that's in power, not the legitimate government, but the Maduro government, apparently knew about the planning, the training well ahead of time, warned the Colombians, in fact, against it. And nonetheless, it went forward and, and was spoiled by a pretty small force. An embarrassing moment. And all it does is really strengthen Maduro's hold on power. It strengthens the uh, military to back him, which at times has looked a little hinky. And it's an unfortunate situation. If the U.S. and or our allies in the region really want to do something on behalf of uh, the legitimate government, we should have done it long ago. And now if we're going to do it, we should do it for real, uh, not these sort of uh, half-hearted attempts that we've taken thus far. It really does seem like this kind of Keystone Cops episode has hurt what I think had been a fairly sensible policy of isolating Maduro, putting pressure on him, building up support among our allies and others in Europe and Latin America to really um, push him into a corner where the only way out was to turn over power to Guaido. This is this has really put the policy back on its heels. Dana, Andrew, do you want to uh, do you want to weigh in here and and give the view from the other side of the aisle? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I can't speak for the other side of the aisle, and as you all know, I'm usually pretty strong when it comes to harassing totalitarian regimes uh, using all the tools of the American government. So I won't pretend I can speak for the American left, but I will say I, I absolutely agree that this episode, in terms of execution, even if it's an organic attempt, it's tainted with its lack of efficacy, lack of planning, lack of exfiltration. And I think I'm always trying to be an optimist when we look at these things. I think that there actually may be a silver lining here because it's not bad for America if authoritarian regimes and dictators around the world fear that the Americans may be working with uh, residents of their own country to undermine that regime. And I'm going to argue that since 1947, going back to the, the, the underpinnings of special operations in America and its roots in the United Kingdom, setting up organic opposition to authoritarians and fascists is part of what won World War II. And we're moving into a great power conflict and I guess I, I would say the silver lining of this may be that um, Maduro may actually recognize that he's under threat and that a very powerful ally to his opposition parties may be interested in seeing him removed from power. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. 
Dana, what do you make of the fact that Venezuela is a high-profile issue for the administration? They've been touting uh, Guaido, and I think legitimately so, as the guy who should be the leader of Venezuela. Maduro's uh, genuinely a bad guy. He's in league with all the folks that we view very dimly, Iran and others. What does it say about the competence of this administration that one of their key allies is willing to support, apparently, at least in some fashion, willing to support an effort that was so poorly planned and executed like this? I think it says that Guaido doesn't have a lot of confidence that U.S. support is going to lead to a democratic transition or the exit of Maduro from power. What hasn't been mentioned yet, it's not just Guaido pushing back on allegations that he was involved in this coup. There are actual documents, whether or not they're fraudulent is another question, I suppose. But there are actual signed documents between U.S.-based mercenaries and Guaido and others for the contract for this operation that specifically says remove Maduro from power. So there is a long trail. It leads back to Florida. It leads back to a network of interest that leans toward the right. So I know the Trump administration to date has denied responsibility or direct knowledge for this, and that's possible. But in the Western Hemisphere, unlike the American people here, memory is long. And the United States has a long history of military involvement in Latin America. And so for a lot of people, this probably resonates as, of course, the Americans would be part of that and gives a huge boost to Maduro. Well, look, I mean, I think it's great that the American left is concerned enough about Maduro and Guaido to do absolutely nothing and really not support any effort to really remove him. You know, we've been talking about the problem Maduro for long since before Donald Trump was in office. The Obama administration did nothing effective on that front. Uh, And it's only gotten worse since then. So, you know, it's no surprise when our enemies don't fear us that these sort of things happen and that our allies take matters in their own hands. It's a long-staying drumbeat for the eight years of Obama and the first four years of Donald Trump, where we talk a big game about supporting our allies and make our enemies afraid. And at every turn, we blink when it comes to our enemies and don't back our allies. And this is just another example of that. And we're going to see more of it, right? We've said we've got sanctions on Venezuela. Iran is sending five tankers full of oil to Venezuela. We'll see if the administration indexes them. I bet they won't. And here we are once again. You know, this is now coming up on 12 years of a non-working American foreign policy. And it's just not what the American people need. It's not what our allies need. It's not what our enemies need. It only strengthens them. That's exactly what happened here. And it's going to happen again. So I don't see this as a clear breakdown between the left and right on what the most effective policy would be to compel Maduro to exit power. There's actually, I think, a lively debate within the right and within the left about whether or not the coercive tools that have been brought to bear thus far, which is largely sanctions, is working, and or should the United States be willing to use military force? There's a debate within the right. There are plenty of loud voices within the Republican Party that are not advocating for the use of force. There are also members of the Republican Party that are. And the same thing on the left. We're living in this post-Iraq and Afghanistan moment where people have seen the results of the U.S. government not being prepared after it uses military force to actually facilitate a responsible democratic transition that doesn't actually lead to more instability, more bloodshed, more chaos. And people are quite humble here about what U.S. force should be used for and whether or not can be used to positive effect. What's your assessment of whether the U.S. should be willing to use military force in Venezuela? In the Republican Party, there are voices, frankly, mostly from Florida on the right that say, uh, military interventions appropriate and maybe necessary in Venezuela. There's a lot of other Republican voices, perhaps more, perhaps a, more voices saying 
well, we're willing to put pressure on Venezuela, on Maduro, but we're not willing to use military force to effectuate change. Given what you were saying earlier about support for some of these nascent native uh, willingness to fight for democracy and liberty in their countries, where do you, where do you come down on that question? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's not about willingness, it's about capability at this point. This is part of, of why I think we all agree that we need a very strong military capability so that should the United States decide to project force, it can. And not in a way where it gets hamstrung. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that we're post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan. I think we're still in it, in the two longest wars in American history. The way we look at pressuring these regimes, and Venezuela is critical, it's in our hemisphere. This brings us back to roots of the American Republic and Monroe Doctrine issues. If we can't manage our affairs at home, we're going to have real problems in Asia and Europe. So I would rephrase that question, make it about capability and readiness, right? Then you've got a credible threat to tyrants anywhere. Then, with that threat, you can actually credibly support opposition parties, human rights activists, freedom of press, with the risk that those that oppose those things in their countries might face, on the one hand, an organic resistance, and on the other hand, the United States leading the world in a charge to squeeze them out of power. And I'm just not sure that that's the way that the current administration and previous administrations have have approached the issue in terms of military readiness uh, and using all of the tools in the uh, president's toolkit to, to impact foreign policy. Jamil, so do you come down as a Florida Republican or a non-Florida Republican? Well, to be clear, as a current Virginia resident and a native Californian, I can tell you I'm fully in support of the Florida senators uh, and their view, as well as the senator from New Jersey, who Dana used to work for, uh, in support of American, robust American intervention in Venezuela. But let's be clear here. It's true, as Andrew says, that we have seen a tremendous decay in our military capabilities and readiness. Um, and actually, you know, for all you might say about the Trump administration, at least they've made an effort to bring some of that back. But look, the real fundamental problem here is not really one of capabilities. If we wanted to go into Venezuela today, we could. The problem is one of willingness. And I think Dana's right that this is about Iraq and Afghanistan and about the American people's unhappiness with those conflicts and the length they've gone to, right, the the lengths they've run to, but also the lack of political leadership from the top, whether it's the Obama administration or the Trump administration now, to really lead and say, these issues do matter. Our own hemisphere does matter. What happens in Venezuela not only matters, but we're willing to put force and military might behind that effort and not be afraid to use that military instrument of power. The fact of the matter is that we've just taken all the tools off the table. The only tool we utilize today of any measure is sanctions. And let's be candid. Our enemies aren't afraid of sanctions. Our allies aren't supported by them. They don't work as effectively as we all like to believe they do. And at some point, without the credible threat of military force, Andrew's exactly right, but it's not just capability, it's willingness. You gotta be willing to use it. We don't have a real stake in the game. And that's the bottom line. That's the failure of the current and prior administrations when it comes to Venezuela, when it comes to Iraq, when it comes to Afghanistan. Everyone knows we aren't willing to go to bat when, our, when push comes to shove. And that's the fundamental issue. It's why China pushes us around in East Asia. It's why Russia pushes us around us in the Middle East. It's why Iran thinks they can get away with anything. It's because we are unwilling to go to bat for our allies or against our enemies. Dana, I think if I were on the left in the Democratic Party and skeptical of this administration, and maybe even skeptical of Jamil's enunciated policy there, I would point out that for all of our interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're still in many ways back on our heels. We haven't eliminated the terrorist threat. 
Uh, we've been there for coming up on 20 years. It seems to be a permanent deployment. Are there folks on the left who are willing to stand up and say, hey, that's the wrong approach. We shouldn't be threatening. We shouldn't be rattling our swords. We shouldn't be thinking about invading. There's another way to do things. How do you, how do you articulate that policy? No, I, I don't hear voices on the left calling for use of military force. I do think that there are members of the Democratic Party, such as my former boss, um, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who have broadly been supportive of the more muscular current administration's approach to Venezuela, such as sanctions, sanctioning PDVSA, the Venezuelan state-owned oil company, attempting to really squeeze the piggy banks of the Maduro regime, et cetera. But Menendez has actually been on the record quite clear that a more muscular policy approach to Venezuela does not equate to military invasion. And I think the interesting thing about the Venezuela case today is there's a very widely respected person running point in the State Department on Venezuela policy, Elliot Abrams, who's articulated a very specific roadmap for democratic transition, who's been the architect of pushing forward with tightening sanctions. And has also, I think he went to the Venezuelan-Colombian border specifically to highlight that the United States was also willing to offer humanitarian aid and push the Maduro regime to allow it over the border into Venezuela, which of course Maduro refused to do. So there's actually a smart policy short of military force, unless of course this Bay of Piglets failure was in fact perhaps tacitly endorsed by select members of the Trump administration outside of a normal national security decision-making process. Who knows? Well, I guess we'll find out in 30 years after the FOIA process. But anyway, all this to say, I think there are members of the left that are supportive of a more muscular approach short of military force. And also now in the context of COVID-19, there are advocates on the left for loosening of sanctions because of the sanctions architecture and the belief that it's preventing humanitarian aid from getting into Venezuela, which of course is a very similar debate we're having in other contexts, such as Iran, which is just a sanctions were loosened. It's not as if this corrupt kleptocratic regime, which in no way prioritizes the needs of its citizens, is actually going to allow those medical supplies or humanitarian aid to get to the right people. I mean, I think it's hard to call the current approach or even the approach adopted by Elliot Abrams, who, let's be frank, is hemmed in by the man at the head of the White House, right? The president of the United States. Elliot would have a much more robust policy, I don't doubt, were he in charge. He's not in charge. He's got a list of Pompeo and Pompeo's got a list of the president, right? And so I wouldn't call this a smart policy because it ain't working. Maduro's in power. He's strengthening his hold on power. The idea that our sanctions policy is working, it's not working. He's only stronger than he was six months ago, a year ago, a year and a half ago. He's much more successful, so the sanctions ain't working. On top of that, this idea that somehow uh, you know, our, our situation in Iraq has become a permanent deployment. Hey, guess what? We have permanent deployments in a lot of places around the world. Germany, Japan, you know why? Because they're a bulwark against threats. We need those permanent deployments. And the truth is, the reason why our Iraq policy hasn't worked is not because we're there and we're not doing enough. It's that we're always ready to cut and run. We cut and ran once the Obama administration. The president's indicated his desire to cut and run again, just like he is in Afghanistan. So nobody fears us because they know we're, we've got one foot out the door. And finally, when it comes to humanitarian aid, nobody can blame sanctions for keeping humanitarian aid out. Dana's exactly right. There is one person to blame for humanitarian aid not being available in Venezuela, and that is Nicolas Maduro. And until we hold him accountable for that and do what it takes to get him out of the way so the people of Venezuela can get the humanitarian aid they deserve, we're not doing our job. Just like we failed with respect to Bashar Assad, we're going to fail again in our own hemisphere. And it's nobody's fault but the president and the prior president and all the leadership who aren't willing to do what it takes, whether it's a Democrat or Republican. And yes, there are plenty of voices on the Republican side, Rand Paul and all the same people 
who are naysayers about American intervention anywhere in the world, no surprise, they're not for it because they want to retreat back home. Got it. Every time we've done that, the world's gotten less safe and more dangerous, worse for our allies, better for our enemies. We don't want that world. That's a world we shouldn't ask for. And I hope that the next president, whoever it might be, or if it's this president, that he's able to get it together and actually take a real policy with respect to Venezuela. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to revisit the last 20 years of challenged policy in the Middle East. I think, um, you know, a challenge across these fault lines between left and right is we're not seeing a unity of effort that would bring together the three Ds of diplomacy, development, and defense. And going to the gun should be the last resort. You know, we should be focusing on leveraging the diplomatic relationship. And I think, you know, anybody would agree that the Trump administration, as a result of its own kind of populist right-wing policies, is very appealing to Maduro. Leveraging ambassadorial relationships with South American strongmen, uh, building uh, uh, relationships uh, in those countries, and then leveraging the full force of the American people through development aid, establishing relationships with NGOs, and frankly, organic, let's just say the organic population. The citizens of the countries need to throw off the mantle of tyranny in their own country. So if I see anything wrong, it's that we don't have the three pillars of this stool necessary to overthrow a regime, even in our own hemisphere. So and I don't think I'm going to get a lot of disagreement when I say, you know, I'm all for a, a military option. But without the ability to project and communicate our support for the people that are affected by Maduro's regime, anything from us coming in from the outside is going to fail exactly like Iraq failed and exactly like Afghanistan failed because we won't have the support of the local. You do kind of wonder how Maduro, who seems like at some level a pretty adept politician, was unable to take advantage of the Trump administration and win perhaps his biggest ally. I think it's because, Dana, tell me if I'm wrong, he's got plenty of voices on the left telling him that he's right and America's wrong. What do we say about the isolationist side of the Democratic Party? Much like Jamil was referencing Rand Paul on the Republican side, there are voices on the left who are against sanctions on Venezuela, who don't think Guaido is the legitimate ruler. What about those voices? Absolutely. There was a moment in time before Vice President Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee for the cycle where Bernie Sanders was very loud and very influential in the Democratic Party and the shift in discussions within progressive foreign policy circles. And at times on issues like Venezuela, Donald J. Trump and Bernie Sanders sounded very similar to each other. There's a serious isolationist streak in both parties. Your average American does not understand why U.S. leadership abroad contributes to prosperity, safety, and security here at home. There is a robust conversation if you talk to your average American about why should we be spending any tax dollars abroad? We should be spending them here at home and would not understand why we should contemplate sending our young men and women in uniform into combat in Venezuela at all. So yeah, I think there are real parallels in a very loud part of the Democratic Party and clearly in a very loud part of the Republican Party, including the guy who sits in the big house. Radical populism, if it's left or right, is not necessarily lining up with America's best interests for the long term. Yeah, I think we're, we're way too unanimous on that. There's no fault line in this group on, on that issue. Well, there's clearly fault lines on the question of when and how and the, the three legs of the stool and the like. But where there is a disagreement is populism is terrible and we're seeing a lot of it. 
on both sides of the aisle. And that's unfortunate for this country. All right. Speaking of populism, let's segue to Brazil, which is going through uh, some pretty wild swings on its coronavirus response. President Bolsonaro, who is very much populist on the right, appears to be totally opposed to the policies of the governors of Brazil, who are very much in favor of a quarantine approach to coronavirus. Bolsonaro's out there demonstrating with the masses against these policies. He thinks any kind of social distancing or mitigation efforts are a waste of time and harmful to the country, while governors take a much more moderate approach trying to protect the population from the virus. There's been a lot of attention in the U.S. on the Brazil response. Brazil's a giant country. It's 200 million people. It's the second biggest country in the hemisphere. Are we projecting some of our own politics on Brazil? Is that why we're following this so closely? Dana, what do you think? I do think that there is a fascination among some with President Trump's seeming fascination with Bolsonaro. Um, There are parallels. Both men have seemed to challenge their versions of the deep state of their own governments, are seemingly making decisions not necessarily in line with the recommendations of public health officials or scientists. And again, playing this populist card. Jamil, what do you think? I mean, it seems to me that Brazil's a democracy. They've elected a guy who's a little provocative and has some policies that maybe we don't totally agree with. But at the end of the day, they're a democracy. We're a democracy. They're going to make some political choices that we don't agree with. We're going to make some political choices they don't agree with. Why are we being so critical of a country like Brazil? Well, look, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing in Brazil as a smaller microcosm of a larger trend that we were talking about earlier when it comes to American politics and frankly, politics in Europe too, which is this rise of populism, whether it's right or left populism, it's populism and the problems of populism, right? The appeals to the sort of lowest common denominator, sort of paying off problems, focusing at home without realizing the challenges abroad. Um, And frankly, Jair Bolsonaro has not done a good job focusing at home. Brazil is now the number four country when it comes to coronavirus across the globe with 14,000 new cases in the past 24 hours, bringing their total to over 233,000. I mean, that's a real problem. And so, you know, I got to tell you, like, this is a good example of populism, whether in the United States or in Brazil or in Central Europe, it doesn't work, people. It sounds great. Sounds terrific when everyone tells you you're going to get everything you need. We're going to be back at work or back at church on Easter Sunday, right? It didn't work here. It's not going to work in Brazil. It's not working in Iran. And it ain't going to succeed. And so, you know, we need to root it out. And even if it's the result of democracy, right, then it's all about education. The best answer to bad speech is not shutting down that speech. It's more speech. And we should call out Bolsonaro for the challenge he has in his own country, just like we should call out those populists in in Europe and the populists here in the United States who appeal to the lowest common denominator when, in fact, that is not what's going to cause for the American people to succeed. Andrew, what's your assessment of, of the populism in Brazil? Is this something that we should maybe have a little lighter touch on? Is it something that's of concern? Of course, there's the issue of the way Brazil has handled these fires in the rainforest. Uh, a lot of folks who are who are very concerned about climate change view this as uh, a lung cancer for the planet. You know, these forests are, are critical to our ecology and uncontrolled fires are, are going to have a bad impact on everyone is the argument. And I believe one of the leading Democratic presidential candidates until uh, Biden came to the fore, 
Bernie Sanders was calling for sanctions on Brazil, a democratic country that has policies that are voted on by its people, uh, that is, you know, maybe has a corruption issue, but is, you know, is a liberal democracy, much like the United States. He wanted to impose sanctions on that country. Are we being a little too harshly critical of, of a country that maybe at the end of the day looks a lot like we do? You know, I think you bring up a really good question. I think there's a lot of parallels. The president and the executive branch of a federal government pushing for opening rapidly, well, governors that, you know, represent states in the republic fight back and say we want stronger restrictions, you know, appeals to the populist lowest common denominator of jingoism and nationalism. And I got to be honest that I see a distressing trend in Brazil of uh, pushing back against scientists and truth-seeking professions. So I think if we see a common trend, and it's not just Brazil, we just talked about Venezuela, you want to look at Hungary, what's going on in Hungary and Europe. And what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing an increase of abuse of the powers that an executive gets as a result of the democratic election. We see a dramatic increase in the repression and villainization of a free media and press. And really concerning me is you, you see a really strong repression of opposition using federal power and abuse of these offices, which all results at the end of the day, you're reducing human rights. You're reducing the democracy that we want to push through responsible leadership. And so, you know, I think Brazil has a bad president and a very good populace. And so I don't think we need to start pushing for regime change in Brazil, all of Venezuela, but it would be important. You know, I guess if I have one concern, it's that the American people don't understand how important Brazil is to our trade in the Western Hemisphere. It's a critical partner for us as the largest population in South America. We do need to pressure them on the climate issues, right? That's real. And at the same time, we got to think through what happens in the next 10, 15 years if we start sanctioning one of our biggest trade partners and most important Western Hemisphere allies. It's a tough challenge for the next administration, whoever it is. Dana, let me ask you the question about Brazil this way. Brazil's a liberal democracy. They're uh, pursuing some policies that, that are of concern to U.S. interests and to U.S. values. Nevertheless, we share a very similar system with them. What if the pressure we're putting on Brazil or the pressure that we're talking about putting on Brazil is in fact an opportunity for a country like China, which really doesn't share our interests and values, to make headway in its relationship with Brazil? Where's the line? Where should we as the world's leading liberal free democracy Where's the line for us when we're dealing with countries that are similar to us, but maybe going in slightly the wrong direction in terms of pressure, carrots and sticks, and worrying about them maybe falling into the Chinese sphere of influence? What do you think? So in terms of the political decisions made by Brazilian people to elect Bolsonaro, he's the head of the government. We need to figure out a way to work with him. That doesn't mean that we embrace or accept or stay quiet when he uses anti-democratic methods, despite the fact that he was elected in a democratic way. It's like classic strong, strong man's playbook here. So the issue with China, rather than to put it in this great power competition context, here's the deal. They're a huge economy. They're a large U.S. trading partner. But if China becomes more enmeshed, more entrenched, and or compromises the supply chain, or the Brazilians are unable to protect our intellectual property, our technology, or in ways that threaten our exports or our economic security, then we need to have an honest conversation with the Brazilian government about what that means. So I think it's quite clear that China sees American antagonism, the American instinct to just sanction everybody for any behavior that we don't approve of. We are sanctioning ourselves into isolation. It's why Venezuela 
and Iran and Russia and Cuba can all work together so easily because they're all already sanctioned anyway. There's really no downside to trying to continue nefarious activities on the margins because we've sanctioned them out of the regular system. So yeah, I think we need to be very careful about Chinese investments in these countries the same way the Chinese are are investing, buying up sectors of influence in many countries. Israel is another good example here and have honest conversations with our traditional commercial trading defense intelligence partners about the implications or perhaps negative impacts on their relationship with the United States. Jamil, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Our friend and someone we worked with in our last jobs, Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, has called for Brazil to be added to NATO. Good idea, bad idea. What do you think? It's hard to know. I think that it's not a clean fit. I think that there are other ways that we can leverage Uh, our relationship with these countries. Uh, You look at what we did uh, with other countries where we call the major non-NATO partners. Uh, We also have a special relationship with India where we have a special defense relationship that's uh, that's equivalent to, I forget what the term is, but it's a statutory term that makes it the equivalent of a major non-NATO partner. So I think we could adopt that approach. I think just sort of cramming everybody into the NATO construct probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so I think there's probably other ways to approach it. Um, At the end of the day, the point is though, Uh, that we want to bring the right allies on board, right? We want to ensure that we are protecting them and defending them in the way uh, that we think is appropriate and staying by our allies and making our enemies afraid. And to go back to our earlier conversation, you know, that has been in short supply for the better part of almost uh, a decade and a half. And uh, and nothing, there's no signs, frankly, um, uh, if this administration continues through the next term, Um, And frankly, even if Vice President Biden becomes a president, that that's likely to change anytime soon. And that's what's concerning to me, uh, is that neither uh, major party candidate, at least based on their prior history, eight years of the Obama administration, four years of this current Trump administration, suggests that they're willing to make our enemies afraid um, or our uh, our allies uh, really believe that we back them. And so that's a concern. And with coronavirus, uh, you know, being in play here in the United States, we're going to be increasingly uh, encouraged to turn inwards. Uh, That's a mistake. Every time we've done that, it's been a fail for the United States. All right. We'll wrap it up on Brazil right there. Let's turn to the final segment of the show where each of us can mention an issue that we're following that's not necessarily on the front page of the newspaper. Andrew, do you want to go first? Sure. You know, it actually ties into our conversation here about Monroe Doctrine 4.0, 21st century, is Puerto Rico on November 3rd will have its first uh, solely black and white or binary choice in a public referendum to become a state or remain uh, a Commonwealth territory of the United States. And I actually do think this is really uh, an emerging issue that we're not going to get a lot of attention because of the COVID distraction and the presidential race this year. But in 1967, the Puerto Ricans did a referendum. 97, I think, percent of them voted and a vast majority wanted to remain uh, independent. They did another one in 2017 with only 23% turnout, but a vast majority of them voted for statehood. And I think in the last two years after the hurricane issues and their current attempts to get some support for COVID relief, back to the people that live on the island, all politics is local. There may be, depending on voter turnout, an actual referendum that was binary that lands itself in the United States Congress for should Puerto Rico become the 51st state in the United States of America. And so I am watching this one. I think it it presents some interesting issues. I anticipate Republicans would oppose based on the the perception that the two senators and five representatives would likely be Democratic leaning. 
or liberal. Although, although notably, the uh, resident commissioner from Puerto Rico is a Republican currently. Yeah, and, and, and I'd argue probably a more progressive Republican, and certainly in, in terms of looking for infrastructure investment from the federal government into the, into the island. The thing I would argue is, um, you know, perhaps we look at strategic interests in this emerging great power struggle, it might be valuable for the United States to start looking at expanding. Uh, and it gives us a strategic, secure state in the Caribbean region, closer to South America, closer to Cuba. If the United States doesn't view itself as a growing democracy, I got a question of, are, are we stagnating? We're just going to decide 50 is enough? Or do we really believe in the vision that our way of life is superior to that of our enemy? Dana, do you want to go next? Thanks, Les. I am following the most important apprehension by an international tribunal in the past decade, Felician Kubuga from Rwanda, who allegedly was the bankroller of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, used his companies allegedly across Rwanda to import all of the machetes from China that were used in the genocide and also owned the radio stations that were airing horrible things that led to the genocide, including the locations of Tutsis, uh, who, as we know, were slaughtered during that, that genocide really, really fast. So apparently this individual has been searched for since 1994, has assumed different identities, hit out um, in Kenya for some period of time, and was apprehended by French authorities in an apartment outside of Paris over the weekend, hidden under a false identity by his children. The importance of this is not just that he will be turned over to the International Tribunal uh, for War Crimes in Rwanda, but what it could possibly send as a message to people who participate or are responsible for genocides or crimes against humanity anywhere, which is even if accountability and justice is not immediate, you are never actually safe and you could be apprehended decades and decades later when you think no one is looking for you. It sends a message to both the victims and to the perpetrators of these crimes. It's, it's a great thing uh, that's happened. It's hard to believe he was on the run for 25 years it's also hard to believe the Tutsis didn't find him and whack him during that time because they were doing a pretty good job of hunting down the other genocidaires. Jamil, what's your issue? So, Les, I'm tracking the uh, case of the Saudi shooter in Florida who killed a number of folks at Pensacola. Um, and the fact that we have identified uh, increasing connections to that shooter and al-Qaeda. Again, not surprising that this uh, was long expected. What's surprising, of course, is that it took us this long, four months uh, from the shooting, uh, to find this out. And of course, the reason why is we couldn't access the shooter's iPhone uh, because of the encryption that's been put in place by Apple and the unwillingness of, of that company and many others to work with the United States government. Uh, ultimately, it looks like we've once again found a hack uh, into an iPhone. Um, not good for the security of iPhones, which is already under significant pressure. Uh, not good for the American government have to wait four months. For all we know, uh, this shooter could have had connections to other uh, al-Qaeda operators of the country. Thank goodness he did not. Um, but this is one of those challenges that if we don't solve this problem today uh, or in the near future about uh, the relation between U.S. government and industry, when it comes to things like strong encryption, we're likely to face a situation where the next shooter, we have the device, we're not able to identify what's on there, another incident happens, and then the American people will be very upset, not just with the U.S. government, but with the provider and with the results of this ill-fated policy uh, when it comes to an overprotection of privacy and not a rational balance between the standard view we've had, which is that if you have a Fourth Amendment warrant, you can get in anybody's device or anybody's house or anybody's bedroom. That's been the rule for 200 years in America. We seem to have thrown that rule out the door because we think full encryption is so important. It's a mistake, and we need to make sure we address that going forward. 
Okay, the issue I'm following is the bill that just passed the House of Representatives on Friday. It was a $3 trillion bill to fund coronavirus response. It was a, it's a Democratic bill. None of the Republicans were involved. No Republicans voted for it. Amazingly, even though it contained $3 trillion in programs in it, basically nothing for international affairs, nothing for foreign aid, nothing to help other countries respond to this crisis. It's a stunning development that is really going to throw the effort to have a robust U.S. international response back on its heels. The Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, is going to have to step up and do the right thing and find a way to fund these programs. Uh, millions of lives are at stake, frankly. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at National nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Suzanne Schultz for research assistance, and our amazing director and producer Grant Haver for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.